right, if you would take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Exodus, chapter number 5. Exodus, chapter 5. Just a really brief summary of where we've come from so far in the book of Exodus. There arose a new king in Egypt who knew not Joseph that uh, stood in the line of Israel as a nation. Joseph was moved to Egypt by extraordinary circumstances, unfortunate circumstances, but circumstances God would use for Joseph's good and for the glory of God and his people. Uh, Things took a turn for the worse, and the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt. And then God called an unlikely prophet, a man named Moses, to himself at a burning bush, charged Moses that he would go and speak to Pharaoh, bring the people of God out of their slavery in Egypt, and ultimately deliver them to a land that flowed with milk and honey. Moses was reluctant to do what God called him to do, but as he always does, God prevailed over the stubbornness of Moses' heart. And Moses now goes in Exodus chapter 5. He answers the call of God in his life. Now, we're days removed from our Global Impact Conference, a time of uh, exhortation and encouragement toward missions. But there are a variety of ways that God may extend the call to us in our life, and we may have, for many of you, answered recently a specific call from God. Even for those of you who may not have responded recently to some call from God, you may be actively living out the call that God has placed on your life. What I mean by that is in the past days, or maybe at some point in your life, God has extended a specific call to you um, in the context of missions. God is calling you to be of service and kingdom advancement in that particular kind of way. Or maybe you're one of um, a few people in our congregation who God has recently called to faith. He's called you to take up the cross and to follow after him in salvation. You're, you're a new believer learning what it means to follow faithfully after Jesus. Or maybe there, there's an area of your life that God's called you to serve. We often, when God calls and we answer, make the assumption that because we're answering the call of God, that following him is going to be really easy. Even even for those of us who would decry things like the health and wealth gospel that says, follow Jesus and everything will be rosy, I, I, I know that's in left field, but I mean closer to home like here, like us. We assume that because we are answering the call of God, that everything will be peachy as we begin to follow him. And, and so what I want to say to you this morning may be heavy, In the sense that I want you to know that sometimes doing what God calls you to do means a great deal of difficulty. But I hope at the same time it will be a word of encouragement to you that in spite of the difficulty, God is actively working for his glory and for your good. That just because you run into some hardship doesn't mean that you've failed to discern the call of God in your life. See, I hear that all the time. We've prayed through this thing as a family. We've been, if you're new here, I've been the pastor here since June the 2nd, so I'm a long-tenured pastor, you know. So this whole business of trying to discern God's call is, 
It's still very fresh for us. And in ministry, you always have friends who are at that place in their life where God's turning the page and beginning something new and they're praying through what that's going to look like. I just talked to a great pastor friend yesterday who started this week in a, in a new ministry context. And, and the way we interpret our life is, is something like this. Things are going well, so it must be an indication of God's call here. But the Bible tells a much different story. In fact, there's an incident in Paul's life where he says, a great door of ministry has been opened and there is great opposition. For Paul and for many others, the indicator of God's favor, blessing, and call was not ease, but hardship. You can look across the history of the church and everywhere God did something phenomenal. It was always marked by great conflict and difficulty on the part of those involved in this movement of God. We, we cannot make the assumption that challenges mean that God has removed his hand from the ministry that God has called us to. We persevere through that. We press through that. And I fear so many times, and I'm getting a little ahead here, but I fear that, that many pastors, that many church members, that many missionaries, that many small group leaders, you name it, really miss the height of what God intends to do in their ministry because they're afraid to push through seasons of difficulty. They're always going to be there. And if you, if you bail on the call of God every time it gets hard, you're never going to get to the good stuff. Moses has this experience in Exodus chapter 5. I'd like us to read all of chapter 5 and the first few verses of chapter 6 together. If you found your way in your copy of God's Word to Exodus 5, I would invite you to stand out of respect and honor for the reading of God's Word. Here's what the Bible says beginning in verse 1. Later, Moses and Aaron went in and said to Pharaoh, This is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival for me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh responded, Who is Yahweh that I should obey him by letting Israel go? I don't know anything about Yahweh, and besides, I will not let Israel go. Then they answered, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go on a three-day trip into the wilderness so that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God, or else he may strike us with plague or sword. The king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why are you causing the people to neglect their work? Get to your work. And Pharaoh also said, look, the people of the land are so numerous, you would stop them from working? And that day Pharaoh commanded the overseers of the people as well as their foremen, don't continue to supply the people with straw for making bricks as before. They must go and gather straw for themselves, but require the same quota of bricks from them as they were making before. Don't reduce it for their slackers. This is why they're crying out. Let's go and sacrifice to our God. Impose heavier work on the men. Then they'll be occupied with it and not pay attention to deceptive words. So the overseers and foremen of the people went out and said to them, this is what Pharaoh says, I'm not giving you straw. Go get straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but there'll be no reduction at all in your workload. So the people scattered throughout the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. 
The overseers insisted, finish your assigned work each day, just as you did when straw was provided. Then the Israelite foremen, whom Pharaoh's slave drivers had set over the people, were beaten and asked, why haven't you finished making your prescribed number of bricks yesterday or today as you did before? So the Israelite foreman went in and cried for help to Pharaoh. Why are you treating your servants this way? No straw has been given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. Look, your servants are being beaten, but it's your own people who are at fault. Verse 17, Pharaoh responded, you're slackers, slackers. That's why you're saying, let us go sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. No straw will be given to you, but you must produce the same quantity of bricks. The Israelite foremen saw that they were in trouble, and they were told, you cannot reduce your daily quota of bricks. When they left Pharaoh, they confronted Moses and Aaron, who stood waiting to meet them. May the Lord take note of you and judge, they said to them, because you've made us reek in front of Pharaoh and his officials, putting a sword in their hand to kill us. So Moses went back to the Lord and asked, Lord, why have you caused trouble for this people? And why did you ever send me? Ever since I went into Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's caused trouble for this people, and you haven't delivered your people at all. But the Lord replied to Moses, now you're going to see what I will do to Pharaoh. He will let them go because of my strong hand. He will drive them out of his land because of my strong hand. In verse 5, God says, furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are forcing to work as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. I want you to know that you can expect that your obedience will always be matched by the obedience of the people around you. Like if you're operating under the assumption that you're going to come to church this morning, you're going to hear a word from God, you're going to be encouraged and equipped and readied for the work that God's called you to. You're going to go home this afternoon with a new fervor for following faithfully after the Lord. Maybe in the course of our time together, God is working through his spirit and you're reflecting even at this moment on areas of your life that need improvement. There's sin that you're harboring in your heart. Maybe there's a secret sin that you've even been unaware of. And God, through the work of his spirit, reveals that to you today. And you're going to go home this afternoon. And you're going to go back to the workplace or to school this week. And you're going to be faithful in that area. Don't fool yourself into believing that your obedience is going to be matched by the obedience of people around you. Don't expect that there's going to be a great deal of excitement on the part of those around you about your newfound faith in Jesus or your new commitment to follow after him with deep conviction. Don't expect unbelieving people to embrace your convictions. So I've had a number of instances um, in ministry. I was reflecting on this this morning, just thinking through the notes again. In, in most cases... It's been grandparents, but, but adults, parents or grandparents who've come to me and they've said, you know, I have a grandson, I have a son, and they're wayward. And what I would like you to do is um, to, to go to them and to talk with them about the gospel, maybe even establish an ongoing connection with them for discipleship, although usually they wouldn't put it in those terms. And, it, and in a handful of 
those incidences, um, the Lord has been faithful to save the individual at hand. In other words, the grandchild or the child has come to faith in Jesus and in a, a few of those instances, they've been rather hot-hearted in their pursuit of Jesus. And what I've experienced in some of those cases is once the child or the grandchild began to be really serious about their relationship with Jesus, the same parent or grandparent that once wanted to see them come to Jesus is now aggravated by the fact that they're following Jesus. Because what some people want for their children or their grandchildren is, is not a, a cross-bearing Christian, but a socially acceptable child who will make good grades, stay out of jail, and get a good job one day. That's what they really want. But when it comes to being a full-fledged, cross-bearing follower of Jesus Christ, it begins to interfere with their personal comfort and therefore becomes a point of aggravation. So when I say to you, don't expect unbelievers to respond in certain ways, what I need you to know is that not everyone who's masquerading as a believer is a true cross-bearing disciple of Jesus Christ. That there are many who are living socially acceptable lives, working upper-class, white-collar, upper-middle-class jobs, doing the things that we've determined within our culture to be acceptable and appropriate to Christian conduct, but who have no real relationship with Jesus that would call upon them to make sacrifices of themselves to bear the cross and to follow faithfully after Christ. Even in that setting, in fact, even in some church context, your faithfulness to God in certain areas will be resisted by the people around you. So, for instance, you were at GIC this past week, and you feel a real sense of call in your life to go and to plant yourself in difficult and different places. And you run home, and you expect your decision to follow Jesus even to the ends of the earth to be celebrated by your friends and family. And you are met with opposition at the idea that you would remove yourself from this area. That's one example of how this might work itself out. There, there are countless others. What I need you to know, what I want you to know, is that your obedience will in all likelihood, in fact, it's a guarantee at some point, your faithfulness to Jesus will be met by opposition in the world. And if it is not, that's the indicator that you may not be answering the call of God at all. Don't expect unbelieving people to embrace your convictions. Pharaoh does not. Notice that Moses does exactly what God told him to do. In verses 1 through 5, he goes to Pharaoh. He says, this is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says, let my people go so they may hold a festival for me in the wilderness. He's even curbed a little of what God says. He's, he's sort of knocked off the rough edges of what God has promised to do for Israel. He makes no request for leaving Egypt altogether. He says, we just want to go in the wilderness and have a little festival. And Pharaoh says, I won't let you go. In fact, he says, you're slackers. You're just trying to get out of work. You're trying to get out of the responsibility that you bear here. I will not let Israel go. 
Don't expect your obedience to be met by celebration in a lost and, and dying world out there. In addition to that, don't expect unbelieving people to accommodate your convictions. This is a real tricky issue, I think. I think we've operated within a a quasi-Christian culture for so long that, that we assume that people must always everywhere accommodate our convictions. And I, I see people really embarrassing themselves sometimes, insisting that their rights be observed, even when it may not be a reasonable thing to expect that to be the case. Like you realize that we do have rights, but the call of the cross is to forego our freedoms for the well-being of others and the advancement of the kingdom. Y'all with me? I could give you a lot of examples, but then you'd all be mad at me before the service was over with, and you wouldn't hear anything else that I had to say. But I want you to know that there can be no expectation, and this is increasingly the case in our culture, that your convictions would be accommodated. Don't don't expect that the lost world around us is going to move heaven and earth to make us feel better about following after Jesus. Just get ready to embrace the sting, the pain, the cross that comes with a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Don't expect unbelieving people to understand your convictions. More, More and more, we find ourselves observing the culture around us and being absolutely astounded at where people get these ideas from. Like, did you hit your head? Or, but the reality is there's a very simple and age-old answer as to why the world doesn't understand the convictions of Christ followers and why Christ followers cannot understand the convictions of those who don't know and love Jesus. The answer is sin. The Bible says clearly that the natural man under the curse of sin cannot discern the things of the Spirit. And the only reason that you see things as you do is because of the work of God's Spirit in your life. An awakening and enlightening presence of God's Spirit has opened your eyes to see God for who He is and to understand the creation as it is. I'm just saying to you this morning, folks, expect that as you follow Jesus, there are going to be some very real difficulties encountered along the way. I want you to see, secondly, in verses 6 through 18, that sometimes, in fact, most times, our obedience is rewarded with hardship. Notice in verse 6 how this unfolds. That day, Pharaoh commanded the overseers of the people as well as their foremen Don't continue to supply the people with straw for making bricks as before. They must go and gather straw for themselves, but require the same quota of bricks from them as they were making before. Don't reduce it for their slackers. That's why they're crying out. Impose heavier work on the men, and they will be occupied with it and not pay attention. Moses did what God told him to do. And in turn for his faithfulness to the call, Pharaoh made it more difficult for him and the people of Israel. This is a frequent occurrence. Now, it may be discouraging the idea that if we follow Christ, there are going to be challenges along the way. But at the same time, there's a touch of encouragement that comes with knowing that this is a shared experience. Like, 
pain for me is always more bearable when I sort of know it's coming. Like I know the next few days are going to be challenging. And so you just got to bow up, put your big boy pants on and press through it, you know. And I, I just want you to know that if you're operating under the impression that everything is going to be rosy, it's not. So get your big boy and girl pants on and just begin to press through some things as a follower of Jesus Christ. But it, gets, it really gets worse than this. In verse 14, the Israelite foremen whom Pharaoh's slave drivers had set over the people were beaten and asked, why haven't you finished making your prescribed number of bricks yesterday or the day before? Now, there, there are slave masters, and then over these groups of Israelite slaves, there are Israelite foremen. And the Israelite foremen are called in, and they're beaten for their lack of production. Now, what's going to happen in a moment in our passage is that the Israelite foremen go to Pharaoh, and they say, the reason we're not making production is your fault. You have taken from us the straw, the stubble that we need to make production when it comes to brick making. And your men have removed the stubble or the straw from us. And Pharaoh says to the Hebrew foreman, the reason I have removed the straw is because of Moses and Aaron meddling in the Pharaoh's business. They've come demanding that you have a vacation to worship Yahweh in the wilderness. And for that, you have been punished. Now in verse 19, the Israelite foreman saw that they were in trouble when they were told, you cannot reduce your daily quota of brick. And when they left Pharaoh, they confronted Moses and Aaron who stood waiting to meet them. Now we've observed that your steps of obedience will not be celebrated by the people around you. Don't expect that to be the case. But I want you to know further that often the people that you hope to serve will be your strongest opposition. Here in verse number 20, when they left Pharaoh, this is the Israelite foreman, they confronted Moses and Aaron who stood waiting to meet them. There's a, a, a rather unique word here used for the confrontation that happens between the foreman and Moses and Aaron. This is more than a sit-down meeting. This is not a diplomatic discussion. They may have gone fisticuffs with Moses and Aaron. You have caused us great trouble. Now think who Moses and Aaron are trying to be of service to. They are trying to be of service to the very Hebrew foreman who've now come to rough them up. Sometimes the people that you desire to serve the most will be your strongest opposition in ministry. I've done things that are disgraceful and sinful and terrible over the course of my life. But if you just take and isolate the past 18 years of my life, those years that I've been following Jesus and, 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 and laboring to follow faithfully after him, if you just isolate that part of my life, the people who would have the worst things to say about me, the people who would have the strongest dislike for me are the people uh, for whom I have uh, exerted the most effort to reach them with the gospel or to help them come out of, of the muck and mire of their life. That's a fact, friends. You, you think about a missionary context. Do you know who kills martyred missionaries? The people they go to serve. 
That's who kills them. Often it will be the case that as you go answering the call of God, not only will there, will there be opposition, your opposition will often come from the very people that you most earnestly desire to see come to faith in Jesus. This is, again, a hard reality, but one that perhaps is made a little easier to swallow when we can expect that it's coming. Again, things are not simply going to go smoothly for us. There will be ridicule. There will be persecution. There will be opposition. And here's what I've experienced. In, in our context, where, where there is virtually no threat of persecution, I, I don't think it's legitimate to categorize someone ridiculing us or having snarky comments or not including us as persecution when they're nailing young men and women to chairs and crosses, drowning them or beheading them around the world. Our petty discomforts seem small in comparison to those things. But even in the absence of real, heavy, hard persecution, your faithfulness will be met by challenges and difficulties in spiritual warfare that are difficult to quantify and are sometimes as challenging as the real heavy persecution. As you begin to follow him, expect that things can begin to crumble. The things you once took for granted in your life are no longer uh, the things that you can take for granted. Emotional challenges, difficulties within, within the family... A few weeks ago, um, you know, we were just around, and I don't know if you know this or not, but preachers have real home lives too, and everybody's just kind of snarky, and kids are acting crazy and all that kind of stuff. And, and Brandy said to me, we were texting back and forth, she said, I, I feel like our family is under attack by the devil. And I said, I feel like you are exactly right. Now, I'm just telling you, when God begins to move in your life, you can expect that not only will there be actual physical opposition to what God is doing, but there will be real spiritual darkness that will descend, and except by the Spirit of God, you will not come out the other side. There, there are only two ways to relieve yourself of that kind of oppression. You will either relent and cease to do what God's called you to do and live a nominal, mediocre, meaningless life for 65 to 90 years and die having made zero contribution to the kingdom of Jesus. Or you'll press through the other side and only God in heaven knows what he might be pleased to do with you on the other side of the valley of the shadow of death. When you follow him, there'll be real challenges along the way. Now, here's what I want to say to you from verses 19 and following. During those challenging seasons, if you are to press through, you must walk by faith and not by sight. But, and here's what I mean by that. What we want is to see how God's going to work it out, and then we'll be pleased to follow it. Like, if you'll give me the game plan here, Jesus, I'm with you. But most of the time in the valley, there is no map. You can't see how God will get you through. And that's how God will be glorified. Because you can't see it. 
When you get to the other side, it will be abundantly clear that God got you there because there was no other reasonable expectation or way that you might have landed there. God got you there. In the valley, you must walk by faith in Jesus and not by sight. You're going to have to let go of some natural things. You're going to have to resist in your prayer life as you pray, God, do this in my life. Resist meandering to earthly ways that this might unfold. This is what might happen. This might happen. This might happen. And then I'd be out and then come back to that and say, oh, God, help. Like work and move the chess pieces of my life so that I can see a likely outcome that serves my benefit. You're going to have to resist that in your prayer life. And say, God, I'm going to blindly let go of every earthly resource. And I'm going to trust that in a miraculous way, in a way that I cannot see today, in a way that I cannot understand, that you're going to see me through this chapter of my life. Look down to verse 19. Rather, skip down to verse 21. Here's where the Hebrew foreman continue to speak. May the Lord take note of you and judge, they said to him, because you've made us reek in front of Pharaoh and his officials, putting a sword in their hand. Can I just make one little note about that? They say, may the Lord look and judge. The opposition to Moses and Aaron, they believe to have a theological basis. Now say that because you will encounter situations where your opposition in following Christ will have a theological basis. They'll, they'll, make it, they'll try to pull a, a verse of scripture, a phrase, or, or something from this hokey folk religion that exists around us, and they'll say, this is why you're wrong about following Jesus in this area. In verse 22, Moses went back to the Lord and asked, Lord, why have you caused trouble for this people? Why did you ever send me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has caused trouble for this people, and you haven't delivered your people at all. But the Lord replied, now you're going to see what I will do to Pharaoh. He will let them go because of my strong hand. He will drive them out of this land because of my strong hand. Now, God is up the ante here. Not only will he let them go, he will drive them out. He, he won't just open the door and say, see yourselves out. He'll, he'll be pushing them out the door. Get out of, get out of Egypt. Here again, Moses and Aaron are touched by the doubt, Israel and Moses are questioning the wisdom of this plan God has set before them. Not only have the Egyptians opposed, but now the people of God are looking around and wondering, can this thing really be? Will God really see it through? So often it is the case for us that with the difficulties come some doubts. Have we really judged God correctly? Have we discerned his call as we should have? You should expect that those doubts will come. I want you to note here in the last part of our passage what, what is really the heart of what I want to say to you. That in spite of the challenges, God calls us to continued faith. He's calling you to continued faith to persevere in the work to which he's called you. God says again in verse 1, you're going to see what I'll do to Pharaoh. He will let them go because of my strong hand. He will drive them out of his land because of my strong hand. Did you catch that? Mm -hmm. It's the strong hand of God that'll do the work. It's, 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 it's not that they're going to have bad weather, 
the economy's going to collapse, Pharaoh's going to fall off the throne and break his neck. It's the strong hand of God that's going to deliver them out. So you can't see that. We, we, don't, we don't have categories for that. We, we don't have systems for understanding that. We don't have a framework for understanding how God is, is going to work. In, in fact, there's a difficulty on the part of the people of Israel to even understand what, what God is saying. Moses comes back to the people of Israel and he repeats the message. We're going to Pharaoh. We're going to say, let my people go. And in verse 9, Moses told this to the Israelites, but they didn't listen to him because of their broken spirit and the hard labor. If, if you succumb to the difficulty, it will be difficult for you to hear what God has promised. And in spite of the difficulty, the promises of God stand. Listen, the promises of God stand. Now, we've, we've sort of treated this passage in, in, in a way that I'm a little bit uncomfortable with because what we've done is we've tried to derive the moral of Moses' experience from Exodus 5. And, and Moses, and for that matter, the Israelites and Pharaoh are not the main character in Exodus, you understand. God is. What we'd better ask of Exodus 5 and 6 and of every chapter is what doctrine the text is teaching. So I want you to think for a moment about who God is, which are, in essence, who God is, is, in essence, what God has promised to be and to do for us. I really believe that what is said in Genesis chapter 50 and verse number 20 is the springboard for understanding all that comes next. Not only all that came in Joseph's life, but all that comes next in the book of Exodus. That what the brothers of Joseph, Joseph meant for evil, God would bend and use for the good of Joseph and the good of his people. It's a smiling providence in spite of a dark and dreary cloud looming over the people of God. That even when we can't see his hand, God is actively working in the events of our life for our good and his glory. I cannot stress enough how central that truth is to the book of Exodus. That God always keeps his promise. He always does what he says he'll do. You may not see it. It may seem so far off. The difficulty of your situation, the hard labor in the case of the Israelites, or your broken spirit may make it hard to hear the promise of God, but the promise of God is always true. He's powerful. He's powerful. God says, my strong hand will see the people of Israel through. You may not see how it adds up in your life. You don't have an equation or a formula that explains what God has promised he will do. But he will always do what he says he will do. Warning? Yes. God always keeps his promises. Brothers and sisters, there, there was a time in the history of God's people when the circumstances seemed more bleak than they do in Exodus 5 and 6. When there, it seemed as though all hope was lost. It was a Saturday. A Saturday almost completely unmentioned in the scripture. But a dark and dreary, despairing Saturday. To be followed by Sunday. When a handful of women would go down to a garden grave where the body of the man they believed once to be their savior lay. 
As they approached the garden grave, they noted that the stone was rolled away. And they heard an angelic announcement say, Why seekest thou the living among the dead? Christ is not here. He is risen. Our God always does what he says he will do. Now, I'm going to tell you something. That's the kind of God you can entrust your life, your soul, and your eternity to. A God who always does what he says he'll do. A God who, in spite of the spiraling circumstances of your life, will always be the strength, the stay, the anchor for your soul. The lone constant in our life is the faithfulness of God who is in heaven. Have you looked to him for forgiveness of sin? Are you resting in him? Are you trusting Jesus with every area of your life? Whether you know it or not, there are situations, there are aspects of your life that are completely outside your control. We're not always aware of them, but they're there. We become attuned to them when the diagnosis is not what we hoped or, or, or when there's some other crisis that awakens us to the presence of those uncontrollable aspects of our life. And I, I want you to know if you're in a tailspin that God is in control, that he's faithful, and he's just, that means he always does what's right, and you can trust him even when there's nowhere else to go.